Trevor Rubin, and then let's let's go for it. I'll stand over here in front. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Reuben. I thank you for the man he is. I thank you for the words he put in his heart. I pray now as he just brings small words to us, use him as a vessel for your work, that he would speak from your heart and he would encourage us well as we continue our journey in Esther. Praise in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Reuben. Amen. Great. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as James mentioned, my name is Ruben. I'm part of the church here. I lead a connect group and I help run the Alpha course, which is, of course, the best of the discipleship practice we can go on in uh, September. Um, and today I'm taking us through the next in our series uh, on the book of Esther. Uh, today we're looking at the character of Mordecai, uh, who is Esther's guardian. Um, so we're looking at the theme of godly obedience. And the story, the question which the book of Esther helps us to answer, and that question is, how do we live when it looks like God is absent? How do we live when it looks like God is absent? And the book of Esther helps us to answer that question because, am I a bit loud? Is that, is that okay? Is that all right? Good. 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 Um, how do we live when it looks like God is absent? The book of Esther helps us to answer that question because it's one of only two books in the Bible uh, that doesn't mention God. Does anyone want to guess which of the other book of the Bible which doesn't mention God is? This is uh, not in the quiz. Numbers. But, uh, not numbers. Just, just guessing. Uh, Song of Songs is the other book in the Bible that doesn't include uh, the book of Esther. So you can sort that one away for the next time we do a quiz. Um, and although uh, God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, uh, we can see his activity everywhere if we read it carefully. Esther and Mordecai were in a situation where it looked like God was absent. They were God's people, but in a foreign land. They were a minority and under threat, and they might have wondered if God had abandoned them. And we can sometimes feel the same. We might look at the world around us and wonder if God is really in control. But looking at Mordecai in the book of Esther helps us to see how we can live when God seems to be absent. And the way that we live is through obedience and trust. So where are we going uh, this morning? We're going to start by thinking about who is Mordecai, and then who are we in the story. Uh, and then, like all good preachers, I have three points, but I don't think I'm going to say that, but the godly obedience is always right, and it's not a small thing, and the godly obedience is an ironic paradox. So you will also know when we're getting towards the end as well. So <laughs> let's start by thinking about who Mordecai is in the story. When we first meet Mordecai in the book of Esther, uh, it doesn't seem like he is going to be a particularly major character in the story. After all, the book is named after Esther, isn't it? It would seem like she is the main character in the story, and Mordecai is just this kind of extra character who kind of, he just looks after Esther at the start of the story, and I think that's about it. Um, but actually, Mordecai is a really important character, and the reason we played that quiz earlier is because if the book of Esther has a hero and a villain, then uh, the hero is Mordecai and the villain is Haman. And there's a really big conflict going on between these two characters in the story. Let me explain why by the way that the two characters are introduced to us as we read the book of Esther. So this is how Mordecai, our hero in the story, is introduced. We're told about his backstory, his family line. And it says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, and Benjamin. And you might think, oh, that's just a boring list of names. Why is this in the story? Let's get on with the exciting part of the story. 
But nothing is wasted in the Book of Esther. Uh, did you notice this detail? He's called a son of Kish. Now, if you were in the summer series last year, looking at 1 Samuel, uh, you will know that King Saul, Israel's first king, uh, was a son of Kish. So when we meet Mordecai, we discover he is a descendant of King Saul. Now, King Saul was not a good king. Uh, one of the key moments in his reign, which actually Paul McCormack and I looked at in the summer series last year, uh, is when King Saul disobeyed God and didn't destroy the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of God's people. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 15. So, Mordecai is from uh, the same family as King Saul, and that's important because when we meet the villain of the story, when we meet Haman, uh, we're told something about his family line as well. Uh, this is how the villain is introduced after these things. King Xerxes promoted Haman the anger guy, the son of the Hamathada, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So again, another list of names would hold his family again, and that matters because he's described as an Agagite. And back in 1 Samuel 15, when King Saul should have destroyed the Amalekites, he should have killed King Agag, but he didn't. And so here in the Book of Esther, we have a replay, essentially, of 1 Samuel 15. We have these two families, uh, these two nations, uh, this kind of ancient rivalry, and it's all happening again. It's like the sequel to every superhero movie you've ever watched, um, and we're getting a replay of that here. And in fact, it goes back even bigger than between these two families. Uh, at the start of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we get set up these two families that you find in the Bible story. God says to the serpent, um, I wonder where that's gone. Uh, anyway. Uh, in Genesis 3, uh, God says to the serpent uh, that uh, there will be enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and you shall bruise his head, and you, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is one of the first promises that we get in the Bible right at the start that starts to point us toward Jesus, to the Messiah, who saves God's people. And in Genesis, we have set up this uh, story of these two families, children of the woman and children of the snake. Um, and you can pick up that storyline throughout the Old Testament. You can look at Cain and Abel. Uh, you can look at Jacob and Esau. You can look at King Saul and King Agag. You can look at Mordecai and Haman. So the book best of fits into this context of a much bigger story. There's something much bigger going on. And at the best time, Characters like Mordecai point us to Jesus, uh, the one who ultimately saves his people. Now, yeah, let's make preview of this slide. I don't know whether any of you, uh, kids or maybe even adults, have one of these personalised books um, where you can put in a child's name and then it will work. You'll get a story personalised around them. I used to have one of these actually, which has my name in it, um, and. It's all about you saving the day in this story. You are the hero of your own story. Um, the publishers describe one of these books, The Power Within, as choose a child's strength and will transform it into a superpower. In an epic, personalized adventure where they get to be the hero and save an entire city, The Power Within is a celebration of every child's unique potential. It sounds great, doesn't it? Um, and 
we can make ourselves think of the Bible being a little bit like this kind of personalised adventure book. We can kind of think about uh, the story of Esther, and we can think, well, who would we like to be in that story? You know, which character? If you could choose any character to play in the book of Esther, who would you choose? Maybe you'd choose Esther, maybe you'd choose Mordecai. You'd want to be the hero. You probably wouldn't want to be Haman. I don't know, maybe, maybe you'd like playing that kind of thing in, in these kind of games. But the Bible uh, isn't like that. That's not really how we want to read the Bible. We're not the hero mm. of the story. But the Bible does show us a wonderful story that we can join in, but we're not the main character. And one of the things I want to show you there is how wonderful the story of the Bible is. Uh, but it's a story about blessing, uh, good versus evil, uh, justice. It's a story that we get to join in with, uh, but uh, we're not the main character. Mm. My main point today isn't that we should be like Mordecai, uh, because that's not the situation we're in. Whatever you're going through today, I don't think you're trying to save God's people from certain death. Um, Jesus is the one who has already done that. Mordecai has to point us towards Jesus. They help us to understand more of who he is and what he has done for us. So with that introduction out of the way, um, let's look at these uh, three points together. So godly obedience is always right. Now, Jesus is going to throw some chocolates at you, um, and the aim of this game is that you don't eat them straight away. You hold on to them, um, and if you can then, uh, at the end of this first point, you can then show Jesus that you haven't eaten your chocolate yet, you get another one. Um, wow. Catch! Patience is the name of this game, and I'll just wait while you all uh, get your chocolate. Okay, let's uh, dive into the story. So, looking at Esther chapter 2. Esther's just become queen, and uh, you've all got some chocolate. So, hold on to it, don't eat it, because if you don't eat it, you get more later on. So, in Esther chapter 2, Esther has just become queen, and Mordecai just happens to be in the right place at the right time to overhear a plot that two of the king's bodyguards they are plotting to kill the king. and Mordecai hears about it, he uh, foils the plot. The king is told and the plot is, the king's life is saved because of what Mordecai does. And that is uh, really good news, isn't it? And in those days, if you saved the king's life, you could expect to receive some kind of reward. Maybe you would get some money, maybe you would get a good position in the government if you helped to save the king's life. And, Mordecai, he does this, but nothing happens to him. His obedience seems to be completely forgotten. And the next thing you read about uh, in the book of Esther, about five years later, um, you have uh, Haman being promoted instead of Mordecai. So nothing happens to Mordecai. His obedience is unrecognized, but he has still done the right thing. Now, someone asked me uh, while I was preparing, how do we know that Mordecai's obedience is godly and that he's doing the right thing? And it's a really good question, obviously, because God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. And one of those reasons is that if you read the prophet Jeremiah, who was speaking to the people in exile uh, like uh, Esther and Mordecai, Jeremiah told them to seek to be a blessing to the place where they were in exile to, um, and that is what uh, Mordecai is doing by saving the king's life. Uh, so he's doing uh, the right thing. Um, and chapter 2 ends with a note that Mordecai's actions were recorded in the official history of the king's reign. But for now, that seems to be completely forgotten. 
And this leads us to some questions. So have a think about these questions, maybe over lunch or after uh, the service. Um, how do you feel when maybe like Mordecai, you're doing the right thing, but you don't get the credit? How do you feel when that happens? Um, and the second question, what do you do when no one is watching? No one else knew that Mordecai had overheard this plot. He could have just let the plot take its course and let the king, uh, let that kind of plot happen. Um, so what do you do when no one's watching? So kids, what do you do when uh, no one knows that you've copied uh, someone else's homework or that you've cheated on that test? What do you do then? Well, growing up, what do you do when there are no speed cameras around? What speed do you drive at when that happens? Or if you're on that really boring Zoom call, no one will know whether you're really listening or not. What do you do when no one else is watching? As followers of Jesus, we know that he is always watching and he sees everything we do. He is the king that we live to please. Paul writes in Colossians, uh, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you're working for the Lord, but not for people. So whether our obedience is recognized or not, we have the ultimate reward of knowing that we live to please our unseen king, uh, is Jesus. Mm. So, well done. If you haven't eaten your chocolate yet, uh, you can now have more chocolate if oh. you want it. So, godly obedience is not a small thing. So, as I mentioned in chapter 2, uh, Monica's obedience seems to go unnoticed and completely unrecognized and no one seems to care. Now maybe sometimes our obedience to God is like that as well. We try and be kind and nice to people, but they don't seem to really respond or realize that we're doing it because we are a Christian. But in chapter three, Mordecai obeys God because he sees himself as part of a bigger story, as part of God's story in the world. Uh, and he does that even though uh, his obedience uh, puts him in great danger. And sometimes our obedience to God makes us stand out. So, a little bit more audience participation. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you have really stood out for some reason? Maybe you misread the dress code at an event you were going to, or you forgot it was World Book Day at school. Turn to the person next to you and talk for one minute about uh, a time when you really stood out, and maybe we'll get some people to share in a minute. Um, tell, so tell the person next to you about a time you really stood out. Okay, uh, anyone want to shout out about a time that they really uh, stood out from the crowd for some reason? Anyone willing to share maybe their embarrassment <laughs> with us? Uh, anyone got anything want to share? Yeah. Oh, do you, do you want to take the mic on or just shut it up? <laughs> My favourite strange one, but um, I was there to do um, a Snow Angel Club in America in shop. So I took Sophie, so I was, I was seeing Sophie on this particular day, and I told her, I said, Would you come with the jam? So I was like, We're into Sainsbury's in Tombridge, and I got on the floor, and I, said, I, I did, I did like a um, sort of like the, like the Snow Angel on the floor. Wow. <laughs> 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 Anyone else got one more? 
Well, you may know I work at safety at sports grounds. Many years ago, I had to go to Royal Ascot, the race course. And you know, the Royal Enclosure, you're supposed to be properly dressed, aren't you, with a top hat and tails. Well, I inspected the enclosure just in a suit. And a few weeks later, a letter arrived from the palace to say that I was improperly dressed. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. No honour for me coming. <laughs> wow. Um, amazing. So, Mordecai, uh, to go back to our story, Mordecai really stood out. Let's uh, have a look in Mordecai, in Esther chapter 3, uh, where, at the point where Mordecai stood out. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the angry guy, remember he's the uh, villain of the story, he promoted Haman, the angry guy, the son of Hamathala, and advanced him, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, but so the king commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him, day after day, he would not listen to them. Uh, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. But he had told them that he was a Jew. So Mordecai's obedience uh, makes him stand out. Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman. And why is that? It's not just because maybe uh, Mordecai doesn't like Haman. There's something bigger going on. As I said at the start, uh, Mordecai gives his reason for not bowing down, that he is a Jew. And he's not going to bow down to an enemy of God's people. He knows that he is part of a bigger story, and we are too. Um, in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about how as Christians we're involved in a spiritual battle. And so our small acts of following Jesus, trusting and obeying him, are part of a much bigger story. Um, as a side point, uh, in chapter 2, Mordecai uh, obeys um, God and saves the king's life. Uh, but here he is disobeying the king's command to honour uh, to honor Haman. Why? Um, why is that? Well, Mordecai's true king was not Xerxes. It wasn't a king who could be seen, but God. And so sometimes, actually, obeying God may mean disobedience to someone else. And we need wisdom to know when that's the case. Mm. And if you were here last week, uh, you'll know that, um, and Sophie helped us to think about, uh, with the aid of some mentors at the Code Bottle, if you remember that, it all went everywhere, um, and hopefully we managed to get it off the carpet, um, uh, that Mordecai's refusal to honour Haman caused him, caused, um, yeah, caused Haman to fly into a rage and to plot to kill the Jews. This is this act of obedience, of not bowing down uh, to Haman, is what causes the great conflict of the whole book. And so we see that sometimes, like in chapter 2, we obey God and nothing really seems to happen and our kindness is forgotten. But other times, like in chapter 3, our obedience to God makes us stand out and might even be actively opposed as well. And whichever situation you're in, whether you are obeying God and nothing seems to be happening, or you're obeying God and everything seems to be happening and everyone seems to hate you, uh, keep trusting God. He is with you. Look how Mordecai felt being all alone, being the only one uh, to not honour Haman in the way that he had been told to. He probably felt quite alone. 
And maybe you are wondering if it's worth standing up for Jesus at work. Maybe you're the only Christian in your team or in your sports team. Is it worth it? Well, the good news is that unlike Mordecai, we are never alone when we have to stand up for Jesus. He is with us uh, by his spirit. We can ask him for wisdom, how to live for him in every situation. And we must ask him for wisdom, especially if it means uh, going against the flow, going against what maybe other people are telling us to do. Did you notice that uh, Mordecai is persistent in his obedience? Uh, they speak to him day after day. They ask him, why are you not bowing down to the most important official in the land? Haman is like the prime minister of Persia at this point. Uh, why are you not doing it? Uh, and it's really easy for us, isn't it, to be very inconsistent. Uh, we can maybe try and stop gossip in the classroom one day, but the next day we're joining in. We can maybe be consistent for a little while, but it might not last. Um, but the good news is that I'm not telling you that we have to be like Mordecai today. That's not the point. Jesus has been Mordecai for us. He has lived a perfectly consistent life, 100% of the time. All of that uh, perfection is credited to us. And we have uh, his spirit living inside us to help us to live a more consistent life. And so the point here is that we obey and we trust God with the outcome. Whether that outcome is that nothing seems to be happening uh, in between chapters two and three of the book of Esther, there's about five years gap where we don't really hear anything in the story. Um, and that's sometimes what life is like, and the outcome of our obedience might seem to be nothing much. Um, well, that is something really dramatic, but we trust God with the outcome. So, here are a couple of questions to think about. Where do you need wisdom today to live faithfully for Jesus? And what might that look like? What might living faithfully for Jesus look like for you this time tomorrow when you're at work or when you're even when you're on holidays or when you're back at school? What does it look like to live for Jesus? Okay, so two points uh, down and one more to go. Godly obedience is an ironic paradox, and I hope you're sitting comfortably because we're going to watch a little bit of a cartoon.
So you may be wondering at this point, why have I shown you um, a clip from a cartoon? Uh, why have I shown you a clip from Coyote and the Roadrunner? And it's because we have uh, something similar happening in the Book of Esther. Um, there is an ironic reversal in the Book of Esther. And we love the irony in that uh, cartoon of the fact that Coyote's plans to catch Roadrunner uh, come back on his own head, that he ends up in the giant vacuum cleaner that he hoped to catch the roadrunner in. It is quite, we love those kind of comics, don't we? And right in the middle of the book of Esther, we find something similar because Haman's plan to destroy the Jews, Haman's plan to kill Mordecai, uh, start to come back on him. So the story has moved on. Uh, we've had Mordecai's obedience in saving the king's life. We've had Mordecai's obedience in not bowing down to Haman, which then leads to Haman plotting to kill all of the Jews. Then Esther, as we looked at last week, Esther has started trying to intervene to save the Jews. She's set her plan in motion. Uh, she's had her first banquet with the king and Haman, where she's starting to set this plan in motion to save the Jews. And then Haman comes out of that banquet. He is delighted because he's been invited to this special meal. Uh, he's very excited about that. He comes out of the banquet and then he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't honor Haman. And that makes Haman absolutely furious. He is mad at this point. He goes home, uh, he talks to his wife, and his wife and his friends advise him, well, the best thing to do at this point would be to try and kill Mordecai. So. Haman sets up this huge gallows and he is all ready to kill Mordecai. And it's evening. Meanwhile, uh, the king has gone to bed. King Xerxes has gone to bed and he is unable to sleep. Do you know that feeling? Um, I don't know what you do when you can't sleep. Um, but it just happens that Xerxes asks his servants to come and read. Uh, his own biography to him, because that's the best reading material, isn't it, if you're a king, about the, how great your reign has been. Um, and it just happens, but they read through those chronicles to the point where Mordecai's actions to save the king are remembered. And the king asks, well, what have we done to honour Mordecai for his obedience and his uh, kindness in saving my life? And they say, well, nothing's been done. Nothing's been done to honour Mordecai. Um, and this is where the reversal begins, uh, because Haman is early in the morning, Haman is on his way to the palace. Haman is getting ready to tell the king about how they need to kill Mordecai. Well, the king has just said, oh, we need to honour Mordecai, we need to, because he saved my life. And this is where uh, we enter the story, where we get the reversal, a bit like Coyote and the Roadrunner. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So you can see that was going through his mind at this point. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? It's a really nice question, isn't it? Um, and Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honour, and then Haman spent, spends a very long time, if you read the book of Esther, he spends quite 
quite a long time at saying about all the great things that should be done for the king, the, the man the king delights to honour, uh, that he should have uh, the king's cause, that people should honour him in so many great ways, because Haman wants this to happen to him. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, and as you've said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Now this is the start of a great reversal in the story. And it's particularly ironic because Haman's name, if you look at what it means in uh, the original language, uh, means celebrated one. Uh, that is what he most wants. And we have this irony uh, that the honour that Haman planned for himself ends up going to Mordecai instead. Well, actually, the death that he planned for Mordecai uh, ends up being his own death. Haman ends up being killed on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And so Haman's desire to be honoured, the thing that he most wants, ends up being the thing uh, that kills him. How often have you wanted a particular thing? Maybe it's a particular toy, a particular computer game, um, or you maybe wanted to, uh, just a bit more money, you know. Uh, but you've never got enough money, the toy is never quite as good as you think it might be. And like Coyote and like Haman, our own plans kind of carry within themselves often their own uh, destruction. And the point is the fact that only Jesus can really truly satisfy our deepest desires. But the most interesting thing actually in chapter 6 is uh, quite hidden. We have this hidden hero and we enjoy the reversal that I just uh, took us through there. But do you know that the whole book of Esther is structured around a big reversal? Uh, it's quite common in the Bible, but the most important point is right in the middle and you can find it because everything else mirrors around that central point. Um, so I have a little diagram, uh, we love a good diagram. Um, this uh, plots out all of the points in the story so far. So you have Xerxes' greatness, you have some parties, uh, you have all of these different points uh, right down to this procession in chapter 6. And then if, as you follow the story on, you discover that everything mirrors. So you have Esther's first banquet, and then you have a second banquet after the royal procession where that reversal starts to happen. And then everything else mirrors as well. So you have uh, two conversations that mirror each other, you have two edicts that mirror each other, you have an edict to destroy the Jews, and then you have to save the Jews. Um, and everything mirrors around the central point, which all hinges on some coincidences. It just happens, the King can't see, just happens when they read about Mordecai's uh, obedience. And so when I introduced that question, how do we live when it looks like God is absent? And I said the answer is about obedience and trust. But we thought quite a lot about obedience, about how it's always right, even if we don't see uh, the benefit of that right now. Um, but also, uh, it's about trust, isn't it? Because while Esther and Mordecai have been at work, uh, God has also been at work. The story hinges in chapter 6 on God's perfect timing. God is quietly at work, and he is turning the plans of the enemy upside down. What uh, Haman intended uh, for Mordecai gets flipped around on him. And Mordecai's apparently forgotten act of obedience is actually what God uses later on in the story to turn everything around. And so that uh, royal procession in chapter 6 uh, leads on uh, just the very next day to uh, things swapping around so that Haman uh, dies and Mordecai becomes prime minister in his place. And now everything is set up for Mordecai and Esther to save the day and save God's people and reverse Haman's edict to destroy the Jews. 
And later on in the story, uh, the day that Haman set out to uh, kind of buy Lot for the Jews to be destroyed, actually becomes the day that they're saved. So later on in chapter uh, 9, on the very day, uh, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So we have another great reversal in the story. And then at the very end of the book, uh, we get this account of Mordecai's greatness, how he's gone from being a nobody, kind of an also, also man in the story, to being prime minister. Because Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. But he saw the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Now all this, Mordecai points us to Jesus, because our salvation is the ultimate reversal. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this way, but the punishment that should have fallen on us, uh, when it fell on God instead in Jesus on the cross. If you think of the cross as being a place of judgment, uh, that actually that's the place where we find grace and we find mercy. If you think about the cross as being a place of death, uh, that's actually the place where we find life. Mm. There's a great reversal going on. And it's also the story of the whole Bible, that there is a reversal, there'll be a judgment at the end of time, uh, when Jesus returns, and we're singing about early Jesus will return and judge uh, the living and the dead. All those who are proud, like Haman, will be brought down, and all those who are humble, uh, like Mordecai, will be lifted up. Um, I wish I had time to go into all the ways that you can kind of see that, but it's the story, not just of uh, Esther, but of the whole Bible, that there is a reversal going on. Mordecai saved his people through living, Jesus saved us by dying for us. And the outcome of Jesus' ultimate obedience is life and blessing. That's what you see uh, about Mordecai in chapter 10. Uh, and that's what we get. We get the benefits of all of Jesus' obedience uh, to us. And the interesting thing is that thinking about a paradox, thinking about things not being quite how they seem, that's also the life that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to a life of obedience. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says these things about people who want to follow him. Uh, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So you see what Jesus is saying in those words? If we try and save our lives by worshipping everything else, by trying to find money or relationships or possessions or whatever it might be, if we try and hold on to our time, uh, then actually we really lose our lives. Uh, we don't really get the things that we want. But if we lose our lives for Jesus' sake, if we let go, if we live a life of service and love, uh, seeking to bless others, uh, then that's when we truly find them. And I know, kind of, in my own life, both in kind of bigger picture kind of things. Uh, so at university, I was asked to be on the executive committee of the Christian Union uh, in a role that I didn't really want to do. Um, it wasn't the role I felt I would maybe best suited to, and uh, it would have been easy to go. I'll try and save my life. I want to. I'm a kind of. I just want to do my own thing. Uh, I don't want to serve in that role. It would be really easy to have said that, but actually doing that, kind of losing my life in that kind of sense. Um, was actually uh, a way to life, and I really enjoyed it much more than I thought it would have been. It was a great opportunity to serve God's people. And so whether it's in a big thing or a small thing in the kind of everyday, like, oh, I don't really feel like going to that church meeting uh, tonight, 
actually, when you do go, when you turn up, uh, it's a blessing uh, to the people around you, um, and you find life, and it's much better than just staying at home and watching Netflix, actually. Um, so, some more questions uh, to think about. Where do you need to remember Jesus' call to lose our lives in order to truly find them? So, to finish off, uh, the Book of Esther centers around this ironic reversal. It points us to Jesus and it shows us how God can use the trust and obedience of his people um, in his plans, even when we can't see how it all fits together. The whole idea is that God is absent from this story, but he isn't really if you know what you're looking for. So we can remember that godly obedience is always right, even when we can't see the outcome and it doesn't look like it. Uh, but it's not a small thing, there's something bigger going on, and when it's an ironic paradox, we find our lives by losing them for Jesus' sake. So God is writing a big and a beautiful story, but we are not the hero. Jesus is the hero. But do you want to join in? Uh, do you want to join in this week? Uh, there are those questions. If you want to take a picture of them, if you want to think about them after the service, if you want to um, talk about them together after uh, the service over lunch, um, or whatever, then uh, please do that. Please read the whole book of Esther. I wish I had time to go through it all with you. Uh, it will take you about 20 minutes. It's really worth doing. Um, and if any of those uh, words of knowledge as well that Chris brought uh, earlier, um, yeah, any of those books you then do uh, chat to him afterwards. Uh, we will finish there and see you next week for the last part in the series um, on the book of Esther. Thanks.